Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the host or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the institute nor medicine cases. There comes a point after maybe the sixth or seventh liter of normal saline for the hemorrhaging patient when any good doctor asks himself, is it time to switch to blood? Let's try that again, shall we? It's not the 90s anymore. You can say goodbye to your Sony Walkman. Don't worry about returning those VHS movies to Blockbuster. And for Pete's sake, stop giving hemorrhaging patients fluid that you can see through. The pendulum has swung in recent years, and for good reason. The formula has changed, and now even those just starting to learn EM are reflexively saying, replace blood with blood products. But it turns out, that like most things in medicine, the idea of initiating massive hemorrhage protocols is slightly more complicated than at first blush. There's more to it than see blood on floor equals order blood in bag. Thankfully, today we have an all-star lineup. They will demystify the red stuff for us and help navigate the murky waters of massive hemorrhage protocols. We have everyone we need right here. A trauma team leader and ED doc in Andrew Petrosoniak who you are sure to recognize from our EM Quick Hits podcast, an ICU doc and trauma surgeon in Barbara Haas from Sunnybrook Hospital, who is new to EM cases. And of course, we couldn't do a podcast on transfusions without her. Also from Sunnybrook, hematologist, transfusion specialist, Jeannie Callum, who I'm pretty sure invented PAC red cells. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for having us. It's nice to be here. Super excited to uh, to be here today. This is my favorite topic. It was actually Dr. Callum who suggested we do this, and uh, I very quickly said yes. So I'm excited for it too. Now, before I ask our experts some probing questions, I'd like to remind you of Dr. Callum's seven T's of massive hemorrhage protocols that we introduced in episode 101, GI bleed emergencies. We'll use these seven T's as a framework for the podcast. So what are the seven T's? Number one is trigger. So know when and how to activate your local MHP. Number two is team. Ensure the lab nurses and required consulting services, ICU, hematology, that they're all notified early. Number three is testing. So remember, you need to do frequent labs, like we're talking Q1H. And uh, don't forget the fibrinogen level. That's a common pitfall. Number four If you're activating a massive hemorrhage protocol for a trauma patient, you're probably going to give TXA, and the earlier the better. Number five is temperature. So maintain body temperature above 36 degrees Celsius. Basically, each degree lower worsens bleeding. Number six is target. We're going to talk about these specific lab targets, both the hematologic lab targets and the metabolic lab targets. And... Number seven, finally, is termination. So you need to know when to stop an MHP based on hemodynamics and labs and to redirect those blood products that you haven't used back to the blood bank so you can save the lives of other patients as well. So before we dive into the 70s, 
let's take a bit of a broader perspective. So Dr. Callum, first, why is it important to have a protocolized MHP and why is it important for protocols to be somewhat consistent between hospitals? So I, I think we need to protocolize the care at each hospital to ensure that every patient gets state-of-the-art massive hemorrhage care. It shouldn't matter who's on that night. We have to somehow achieve stellar care for every patient every time. It's always uh, going to be a different team on that night. You know, the nurses are going to be different, the technologist in the blood bank or the hematology lab, different porter, different emerge physicians. And we need to know what they're doing and always do it the same way every shift for every patient. And essentially, we need everybody singing from the same song sheet. Otherwise, we'll be all out of tune. And we also need to standardize that care between hospitals because, you know, many of us work at different hospitals. When I'm on call for transfusion at night, I cover 25 hospitals. I can't possibly remember 25 different massive hemorrhage protocols. And, you know, we might also train a resident at one hospital and then they rotate to another and then they get a staff job at another hospital. And we can't expect them to learn a completely new massive hemorrhage protocol every time they change hospitals. And just lastly, you know, patients move in the middle of a massive hemorrhage protocol. So they might start off at a small hospital and have to go to a big trauma hospital. And so when you receive that patient, you know, they might uh, at red cell 789. And by that point, you'll know, okay, this patient would have gotten TXA by the protocol. Their anticoagulants have been reversed. They've gotten some FFP in a platelet. They've had two sets of blood work. And you know exactly where that patient should be at that point. Yeah, I mean, standardized care is so important in this context. Sure, there's a lot of clinical judgment that does come in when to activate the massive hemorrhage protocols, but this isn't the time to be a cowboy or a cowgirl and say, you know, I can remember all this stuff on my own. We don't really need to protocolize it. I just want to do what I want to do. Now, you've noticed that we've been talking about massive hemorrhage protocols and not massive transfusion protocols. So semantics are important here. Dr. Haas, what's in the name massive hemorrhage protocol as opposed to massive transfusion protocol? Well, I think uh, the idea of it being a massive hemorrhage protocol uh, is important for two reasons. First, we should be triggering for bleeding and realizing there's a problem. And not everyone where we trigger the uh, massive hemorrhage protocol goes on to actually be massively transfused, uh, which we would define as probably 10 units in the first 24 hours. The other issue is that transfusion is a temporizing measure. When we have a patient, a trauma patient, who's massively hemorrhaging, the treatment is hemorrhage control. And everything that we do before that is with the goal of getting the patient to timely and appropriate hemorrhage control. Transfusion is part of it, but it's not the only element. We spent a lot of time talking about blood products and ratios, but the other elements of the hemorrhage protocol are just as or even more important. Giving TXA, staying on top of monitoring, keeping the patient warm, not unnecessarily exposing the patient and getting the patient to where they need to go with the right people uh, in a timely fashion. So it's not just about transfusion. It's about managing the patient as we get them to hemorrhage control. For that reason, I think taking the focus away from just how and what we transfuse to how we manage the situation, how we manage the patient, and how we uh, manage the care is important. There's a whole lot more to the massive hemorrhage protocol than just the transfusion. 
And also, I mean, the the definition of massive transfusion is classically 10 units over 24 hours, but that doesn't really apply to what we're doing in the emergency department. So that's, you know, that's another reason why we shouldn't really call it a massive transfusion protocol. We're going to get onto the seven T's in just a minute, but before we do, one more question that we just have to ask to ensure things go smoothly with our bleeding patient. Um, Dr. Petrosoniak, how do you suggest we prepare ourselves, prepare our team, and prepare our gear when it comes to the massively hemorrhaging patient? Yeah, and and I think you know th- that approach is something that has been called as part of sort of your zero point survey. Sort of what do you do even before the patient arrives? Uh, and I like to think of it in that sequence. Sort of how do I prepare personally? How am I then going to prepare my team? And then how are we going to prepare the space, the equipment, the environment uh, to ensure that we can quickly manage a bleeding patient uh, in as an efficient and effective way possible? So first, I'm thinking about myself. I'll think about how, what do I know about the patient? What what kind of resources am I going to need to get to the bedside? You know, what's my understanding of uh, what's happening? It might be very little in terms of uh, the information we have from EMS. We may not have vital signs, but we might have a sense of where they're bleeding from or perhaps uh, what the options might be in terms of where they're bleeding. And then that way, I can start to work through in my mind scripting out the next 5, 10, 15 minutes uh, once they arrive, you know, what, how things are going to look. Probably the most important part is the team and briefing the team so that we have a shared mental model of what we're all trying to achieve. Uh, we've talked about this before, Anton, but sometimes in trauma, our first emphasis is not actually following the A, then B, then C. You know, we often, if a patient's got an arterial bleed from their brachial artery, our priority is not going to be assessing their airway, but rather putting a tourniquet on that arm. And so ensuring that when we have um, the patient roll in, that the team's understanding of how important it is to prioritize hemorrhage control, and then subsequently administration of blood and blood products and where that might fit in, and how that might differ from what the traditional teaching of airway, breathing, circulation, at least uh, we may evaluate the patient in that sequence, but we may not manage the patient definitively in that sequence. So we may actually provide blood before we intubate the patient. And obviously, the clinical circumstances will dictate how we proceed. But once the team understands that, and we all have a shared sense of what it is that we need to get accomplished in the first few minutes, then that really allows them some autonomy to with their own expertise to be able to manage the patient, uh, whether it's uh, getting IV access, whether it's setting up the level one or the um, the rapid transfuser, whatever that might be. And, and then ultimately that dovetails nicely into how we set up our equipment, our environment. And that might involve um, activating MHP in advance, or it might be even just making sure we have a couple of units of blood at the bedside. So that's a critical step followed by the need for the level one primed and ready to go, the nurses knowing that their main priority is to get IV access. And if we can't, you know, the need for a, for a central line. So I like to be able to automate a process as much as possible, at least for two or three minutes, so that we know the patient comes in, I can say something like once, let's just get a unit into them and let me know when that's finished. And that can very much happen without me 
having to pay attention to that. And then they come back and, and then we can kind of move forward in the resuscitation. Great. Yeah. I'm going to refer people to our podcast that we did, the trauma, the first and last 15 minutes for all the details of of all those preparation strategies. But of course, preparation is key in anything in emergency medicine. You were talking about preparing your team and that's your ED team. But when it comes to massive hemorrhage protocols, there's more than just the team in the emergency department. In terms of the timing of who you need to call and how in terms of your lab and your hematologists, how do you integrate that into your flow when you have the the bleeding trauma patient? Yeah, we like to keep our hematologists sleeping at home nicely, you know, so that they can have a nice, uh, a nice relaxing sleep while we resuscitate those patients. Just kidding. <laughs> um, but uh, no, I think it's, it's, it's absolutely critical that we follow whatever procedure it is in your hospital, but up front, uh, we will have, at least for our institution, we'll have one of our clinical assistants or one of our porters go up and get the blood. We make it very clear to them in that, that we need them back here as soon as possible uh, and emphasizing the importance of that. And the process now has become so refined that that happens almost automatically. And depending on uh, what information we have, it might be a call to blood bank to say we need two or four units of pack cells, or it might be that we're expecting a considerable transfusion uh, needs and that we actually need to activate the MHP. So we will, that usually involves a call to our locating system to provide human resources, as well as a call directly to our blood bank to, to activate um, so that they can start buying the appropriate products and preparing the appropriate products for transport. So there are several people that are involved. We also have our clericals who are there as well to help facilitate all of this. And they have a really good understanding of the process. Great. And then again, when it comes to the preparation, Dr. Haas, from a, a surgical perspective, what are some of the kind of key things in terms of getting the surgical team ready and the, the timing of the massive hemorrhage protocol and surgery? Source control is of utmost importance in many trauma patients. And so you want to get the patient to surgery. Do you have any suggestions in terms of how to manage the flow of surgery and the massive hemorrhage protocol happening kind of at the same time? I think that's a great question. For me, the biggest message when we talk about this, for example, with the residents is that the trauma bay is not a place for ego, right? We have amazing trauma team leaders. They are running the resuscitation. My job is to be what I like to call the expert assist. I'm booking the case. I am offering to call the blood bank for additional things they may need. I'm talking to anesthesia. I'm sort of uh, stage managing some of the things that are going to happen next as my colleague who is acting as the TTL leads the resuscitation. I also think it's important to think about early notification of your surgeon in these situations. We have criteria at Sunnybrook where we ask our residents to call the surgeon. And these include any transfusion in the trauma bay activation of a massive transfusion protocol or not, any hemodynamic instability, even pre-hospital. Well, that, that's interesting. So just uh, to pause there. So even if in the field, I mean, we've talked about this before, Dr. Petrosoniak, about the prediction of you know shock index, et cetera, in pre-hospital setting for the need for massive hemorrhage protocol activation. My guess is what you're suggesting is that for patients who are in obvious hemorrhagic shock in the field, there might be consideration to notify the surgery team even before the patient gets to the emergency department. Is that fair? 
That's right. Uh, you know, most of the time we're not in-house. We live probably about 10 minutes away. And we certainly don't come in every single time we're called because there was a low blood pressure in the field. But if my team knows that someone's been shot in the torso and they have a blood pressure of 70 in the field, you know I'm putting on my scrubs and getting in the car because really minutes do matter. And it's not just minutes to transfusion, but minutes to hemorrhage control. And so I'm often in place when the patient arrives. And of course, this does lead to arrival. Everything's actually fine. I say hi to my team and my colleagues and I go back home. But to save a life, you have to be there uh, from the beginning and uh, you have to accept that you'll have some false positives. So we have a very low threshold to be notified. And of course, there is some judgment about coming in, but the notification allows us to apply that judgment and be there when it matters. Fantastic. So much great stuff so far. Uh, we haven't even gotten to the 70s really, but <laughs> I think now we probably should. So we've got our sort of preparation strategies out of the way. We've got our definitions out of the way. Now we can talk about the 70s. So the first T is trigger. Um, so Dr. Petrosoniak, how do we decide when to activate a massive hemorrhage protocol? In other words, what are the indications to activate an MHP? For many of us working in the emergency department, this is really one of the challenges and, and one area that has received a fair amount of attention, and yet we still don't have, I would say, a great answer or one definitive clear-cut set of criteria that every time when we meet these criteria, the patient does in fact need an MHP, and if they don't, then we accurately exclude people. We still, our sensitivities and specificities for these, for our approaches are not perfect. Uh, we know that clinical judgment is not perfect, you know, that our sensitivity and specificity for simply going without any structured approach might be in the 60-70% range. And then with some clinical judgment coupled with um, more standardized tools, then we maybe get up into the 80% range. When I start to think about this, I sort of divide it into three steps. The first is, do I have any indication that there's a need of, based on the pre-hospital information that I have uh, for blood activation? And, and then while I'm in the trauma bay, once the patient arrives, are there factors there that I need um, to activate blood? And then subsequently, the third stage is the progression of the re resuscitation are there further factors? And I think we also balance the need to call for blood so that we can start a resuscitation and then whether we upgrade to a MHP and, and the likelihood that we'll need more of the products, FFP, platelets, that kind of thing. And so I think that most of the studies look at MHP activation. I think practically speaking, if we can simply get blood to the patient more quickly, then that's probably a great starting point. And I sort of use the terms interchangeably, just it's a bit easier to kind of go that way. But when I when I hear in the field that, you know, they're, like Barbara already mentioned, a thoracoabdominal gunshot wound, even if I don't have a vital signs that come uh, along with that, there's a good chance that patient's going to need blood, whether I activate the MHP might depend a little bit on uh, further information, but I certainly will call for a couple of units of blood products to be brought down to the, the trauma bay. Falls of several stories. Uh, unfortunately, in Toronto, we, we see a fair amount of people versus subway trains. 
catastrophic injuries like this are often ones that for me are enough to trigger at least having blood at the at the bedside prior to the patient arriving. Other uh, factors, uh, if the patient's peri-arrest or in arrest, then I'll call for blood. And that may or may, depending on the circumstances, might be a MHP or I might just call for blood products. And then finally, the shock index I used in conjunction with what the systolic blood pressure is. So for me, if we have a shock index where the heart rate, and for those that maybe are less familiar, that's the heart rate over systolic. And if it's greater than one, then then you're more likely to need an MHP in a trauma patient. I think if the heart rate is 130 and the systolic is 120, I'm not necessarily going to activate the MHP. But if I have a shock index greater than one and a systolic blood pressure less than 100, if I get that information, that's a pretty good reason for me to call for blood. Once they get into the trauma bay, then I do use some of the scoring tools in conjunction with my own gestalt. And personally, I use the RABT or the RABBIT score, though people might be familiar with the ABC score. Or you can simply use the shock index, and none of them are perfect. They all have pitfalls with them. The two scores require the uh, the, the application of a fast, and so you'll you'll get it wrong, you know, ten, twenty, thirty percent of the time. But but overall, um, they're quite helpful in contextualizing, you know, who needs blood or not. And certainly for folks that are less likely to see uh, a bleeding patient on a regular basis, then you know, they can be quite helpful. And then finally. I think about once the resuscitation has begun, I've maybe given a couple of units of blood products and I haven't yet activated the MHP. If I'm moving into my third unit and expecting more, uh, the concept of resuscitation intensity, then if I haven't, I will activate the MHP there. So that I, I know that's a lot, but I will kind of look at it in the pre-hospital information that I have, the information I have in the trauma bay, and then the progression of the resuscitation. I think it's important to acknowledge all of this, the data that is out there about this kind of information, the accuracy of a shock index or ABC score, all of these are done retrospectively. So they look at patients and they then apply in a retrospective manner with the ABC score of predicted need for MHP and more likely than not, it would. But it doesn't mean that the presence of two or more of these features in that score mean that 100% of the time you're going to need an MHP. It's just that it's better than nothing else. So, so I think it's important to understand the limitations on how the literature has been derived. All right. So that's a little bit about the scores, which can be helpful, but as you've just explained, aren't perfect. And from an evidence-based medicine point of view, aren't ideal. What about some of the sort of so-called pitfall conditions like anticoagulation, for example? How do those play into your decision to activate an MHP? Other things that I'm become more likely to activate in conjunction with the other information that I get is a patient that I know is on anticoagulation, elderly folks, and then if I know that they're on medications that might be blunting their physiologic response like a beta blocker. Now, you know, if that patient's coming right from the field, that's often not information that we have. But if I know this patient's coming from a different institution and I have that information, then that certainly will help play into uh, my understanding of what their current physiology is and and maybe where they're going to be going with that. Simply put, the indications for activation of an MHP would be, one is your clinical judgment, which should also incorporate things like the shock index. We didn't really talk about the delta shock index, but that's another one, and the RABT score or the ABC score. 
So there's the sort of scores and shock index and clinical judgment is one thing. There's the mechanism of injury. And then um, just be sure to lower your threshold in those pitfall conditions like older patients, patients on anticoagulants and patients on medications like beta blockers. I want to talk a little bit about ratios. So until the results of the lab tests come back and the hemorrhage pace is slowed, what ratio of plasma or FFP to RBCs should we target? So are you sort of in the one-to-one-to-one camp or the one-to-one-to-two camp? This seems to be sort of hotly debated all the time. The Ontario guidelines that have been published is that two to one to one is is reasonable? So it's two two units of pack cells to one unit of FFP to one unit of platelets. I'm okay with that number. You know the data isn't overwhelming that one to one to one is any better. I think that if from a blood conservation perspective, it's probably better to do the two to one to one. I think there might be something to the concept at a human factors level of one to one to one meaning that then it's just easier to convey to people that you should just have a balanced number. But I think if you at all using some ratio-based resuscitation versus just giving either crystalloid, which hopefully is not happening, or just pack cells, I think if you're doing a ratio-based resuscitation of something, it's going to be better than nothing. And honestly, I don't know that I could argue that one-to-one-to-one versus two-to-one-to-one, you know, that there's a meaningful differences. Dr. Callum? With a disclosure that uh, I was part of the group that participated in the proper study. So we've got a pretty good RCT comparing one-to-one-to-one with two-to-one-to-one with equivalent mortality at 24 hours and at 30 days. And the military has also shown before and after implementing one-to-one-to-one mortality rate didn't go down. And then a large study out of Harvard showed the same thing. They switched to -to one-to-one-to-one, no benefit. So I don't think anybody can have a strong opinion about what the right ratio is, but I think it's probably good medicine to achieve at least a two to one to one ratio for your massive hemorrhage protocol activations. I'm firmly in the two to one to one camp to echo what Dr. Callum said. uh, The best evidence we have is the proper study, despite what you might vociferously hear at trauma conferences. That was in fact a negative study that two ratios, two to one to one and one to one to one had equivalent outcomes. The secondary outcomes, of course, famously favored one to one to one, but uh, they were sort of not the most objective and certainly not patient-centered outcomes. I would also add, I, I think it's important to say at some point in this podcast, you know, there's been so much talk about not giving crystalloids. You know, if you go on Twitter, there's all these jokes about spaghetti water and so forth, that particularly among trainees, there's almost a fear that, oh no, what if I accidentally give some crystalloid up front? I often give an example of a patient that comes in with a blood pressure of 90 and a heart rate of 120. I don't give any other information. And most tell me that we should immediately start with blood, which of course may not be the right thing to do. So I would say that you know, as long as you have flexibility of mind, as long as you're saying, I'm going to, it's okay to give something at, up front. And if I gather information that makes me actually realize this patient needs blood, I'm going to immediately stop the crystalloid um, and start transfusing. You know, a little bit of crystalloid up front is probably not harmful in those patients where it's not entirely clear. Just as Dr. Petrosoniak said, 
uh, in terms of, you know, giving blood and then making a decision about activating the massive hemorrhage protocol. Sometimes at the beginning, the patient actually might be okay with just some crystalloid and isn't in fact massively bleeding. And there shouldn't be a fear that if you give 500 cc's of ringers up front that you're committing a cardinal sin where the gods of trauma will descend upon you. So it's important to to have mental flexibility at the beginning, either to escalate or to de-escalate, depending on what your starting strategy was. But we've really come to a point where people are scared to give any crystalloid in case they get it wrong. And to my knowledge, there isn't any data showing if you get it wrong in the first, you know, five minutes that something tragic will happen. You just have to not stick with your strategy if it turns out not to meet the patient's needs. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good point, especially for uh, the rural physicians who listen to the podcast who may not get access to blood products fast enough. It's okay to give, you know, 250 cc's of, of ringers just to uh, maintain a blood pressure. So that's, yeah, that's a really good point. In settings where you have blood at the bedside as the patient arrives, then of course that's sort of a, a different situation. I want to talk a little bit more about uh, the logistics and timing involved in getting that two-to-one ratio that we've been talking about. Dr. Petrosoniak, can you just run through for us how it actually works in terms of getting those red cells in and then the FFP has to thaw? Like, How do you actually achieve that two-to-one in real time? Yeah, I think, I, I think this is one of the areas that we as a trauma community have probably failed um, to communicate sort of more broadly, I think, in terms of the knowledge translation piece. I think people understand the concept of ratio-based resuscitation. I don't know that it has always been super uh, easy to conceptualize right at the bedside. And people, at least I, I get frequently asked, well, so after the one unit is through, do I have to go, you know, wait for the FFP to arrive? And th- those are quite reasonable questions. And I think um, the way that most places have it is that pack cells are more readily available, and they certainly come in our first pack. And so we'll go ahead and proceed with pack cells until FFP shows up. Usually that happens, um, you know, we're about 20 minutes into the resuscitation, and we'll have given three or four units of pack cells. And at that point, as long as we recognize that that now we're in a point where we were going to change the strategy. If the patient continues to require uh, blood products, then for the next little bit, then we'll go to FFP. So it doesn't have to be a back and forth one to one exactly. It can be, you know, you give a couple of units of pack cells. And then once uh, you've decided that you still need to resuscitate, you can go ahead and, and give a, a balance out your ratio with FFP. And then, you know, at some point, once you've achieved that balance, then maybe you will go back and forth and do one unit of FFP, one unit of pack cells, back and, and so forth as the resuscitation continues. The other thing I think it's important to realize is that let's imagine you give four units of pack cells. Uh, you're giving your first unit of FFP simply based on the fact that, you know, the FFP took a little bit of time to thaw. And then you have a good hemodynamic response and the patient's Either their mentation improves, their blood pressure improves, they seem to be hemodynamically stable. 
I'm not going to continue FFP just because I need to meet a ratio. I still base it on the, um, the clinical impression, the judgment of the patient in front of me. And so I'll keep that in mind that if the patient's blood pressure drops again or their mentation decreases, the next product that they'll get will be FFP, but I won't just balance a ratio just to say that I can, the ratio is balanced. Dr. Callum, any comments there? Timing for RBCs and plasma and platelets? I think what's most important for patient outcomes is in a patient that actually needs blood, um, that we have to get the blood into that patient very quickly to save their life. And some observational data that came out of the proper study showed that every one minute delay to that first cooler getting to the trauma bay uh, increased mortality rate by 5%. Um, And it turned out to be more important than the ratio in that study. So I think the key is get the blood down to the trauma room. And in that patient that really needs blood, get that first unit into that patient and accelerate the resuscitation. I think if if you're balancing, you know, this out and looking to balance, like if you can achieve a balanced resuscitation or balanced ratio by somewhere between one and three hours in, I think that you're doing great and you should congratulate yourself. You know, I think if you haven't achieved that at 30 minutes, I don't think that's a big problem. That's an incredible observational piece of data there that every one minute delay to first red cell bag is associated with an increased mortality of 5%. So if all else fails, just get those red cells to the patient as fast as you can, however you can. I do think, Anton, though, that you know we have to understand what that one minute means. It doesn't just mean that the blood took an extra minute. It may also mean that it took some time to recognize there was a problem. It took some time to get the right team. It may have been time to getting IV access, you know, for example, persevering on getting a central line rather than changing modes and putting in an IO. So the delay is also about mental modeling and understanding what's going on with the patient and moving things along. It's not just about getting the cooler to the patient and getting the blood in. It's why I didn't get there quickly enough and why the blood didn't get in. So again, speaks to this being a massive hemorrhage protocol, not just a massive transfusion protocol. It's it's not just about blood getting in, but realizing the blood needs to get there and get into the patient quickly. Excellent point. Excellent point. We've been talking about red cells and, and plasma and platelets, but there's a whole other way of doing this with PCCs and fibrinogen. You know, many of our colleagues here and in Europe have moved to concentrates like PCCs and fibrinogen instead of giving FFP and platelets. Some folks use PCCs and fibrinogen concentrates right at the initial stages of resuscitation. Dr. Callum, what do you think we should be doing here? It's a little bit confusing. Should we be trying to get this one-to-one or two-to-one ratio with plasma up front initially in the ED, or should we be thinking about PCCs and fibrinogen up front? Yeah. So, you know, using fibrinogen concentrates either with or without PCCs is the standard in many European countries. And there are small randomized trials, and of course, they've been summarized in systematic reviews that suggest that this concentrate strategy is at least as good and perhaps better than the classic North American plasma strategy of one-to-one. And there are some theoretical benefits of such a concentrated strategy, These products are kept at room temperature, so you can keep them in the trauma bay. You can put them in the operating room. You don't need a blood group, so you don't need your blood bank tech running a test. It means you don't need to use AB plasma that we're always in short supply of. 
they're pathogen reduced. We don't have to worry about the viruses. It's a small volume that you can inject over minutes. So you can almost instantaneously correct the coagulopathy. And because they're pooled, they don't cause, you know, things like transfusion related acute lung injury. So, so there are some definitely enticing attributes to that strategy. So you can see why many European physicians have transitioned to this strategy. But honestly, for me, I want to see large definitive trials before we switch. I don't like switching what we do in clinical medicine without a good trial. So I really understand the pros and cons of this concentrate versus plasma debate. So I think if I'm at a hospital where I can get plasma, for now, I'm sticking with that plasma strategy, unless it's in the setting of a clinical trial. But if I'm at a smaller rural hospital, and they just don't have plasma at all, my only option is PCCs and fibrinogen concentrate, then I would have no qualms about using that to tide it over until the helicopter got there to take my patient to a center where they can have definitive hemorrhage control. Yeah, good point. There's certainly going to be regional variations to decide one or the other. Just one more thing about that. In terms of cost, I understand PCCs are quite expensive. Fibrinogen is as well, I believe. Uh, what would be the cost comparison roughly between the fibrinogen and PCC strategy versus the FFP strategy? I think it depends actually on uh, what country you're in. So if you're in a country, say, like uh, south of the border, uh, where every hospital or hospital group is purchasing it, the cost difference is about four to one. It's about four times more expensive to give PCC than it would be to get plasma. But in Canada, where the PCCs and fibrinogen concentrates are bulk purchased for the whole country, we obviously get a better deal because we're buying large volumes. It actually is a very similar cost translation. So in Canada, we don't worry so much about the cost because of just the way that we're set up. But in other countries, it's a much more expensive strategy. Interesting. Jeannie, we should mention, I think, that our neighbors to the south are, in fact, moving to the other end of the spectrum, they're moving away from component therapy altogether. And if you go to trauma surgery meetings, it's whole blood that is the hot topic. And many are convinced, again, with minimal to no data that, in fact, we shouldn't be giving components, we shouldn't be giving pack cells FFP, we should just be giving these patients whole blood um, as early as possible. And that the whole idea of breaking whole blood up into blood products and concentrate products is completely wrong and causing death. So it's going to be interesting to see in the next decade how these two diametrically opposite approaches play out in the literature. I see a massive RCT coming, comparing whole blood versus concentrates versus FFP. But I have to agree with you, Dr. Callum, that really, if, if you want to practice evidence-based medicine, which I think we should all strive to do, the evidence currently Despite any theoretical benefits of the other strategies, the current strategy of two to one to one ratio with uh, plasma is the best. 100%. Let's shift a little bit towards the patient who is taking an anticoagulant, and we'll, we'll start with warfarin. So you've got your trauma patient. They've been taking warfarin regularly, let's say for atrial fibrillation. How should we approach the bleeding patient on warfarin in terms of FFP and, and PCCs that we've been talking about? Okay, so for this conversation, I think we're making the assumption that we've activated the massive hemorrhage protocol and your patient is massively bleeding. And I think that that patient needs both the plasma at a minimum ratio of two to one, uh, just to make sure we're replacing all of their clotting factors, 
plus the PCCs to reverse the warfarin. So in a sense, I see the PCCs for the warfarin reversal as kind of like an a la carte item on top of your standard transfusion recipe. And the other thing I teach is that I don't wait for the INR. If the history tells you or some medical alert bracelet tells you that the patient's on warfarin, they've got their AFib, um, I just start 2000 as our flat starting dose of PCC. Don't forget your vitamin K. That's important too to get sustained reversal. And if I can, I try and get an INR drawn if time allows it before. So I know what my starting INR was. Um, And then an INR immediately after to make sure I've hit somewhere around that 1.5 marker lower for my INR to make sure I've got good reversal. And after that's done, to me, they're just a regular patient. There are some patients that, you know, come in, their baseline INR was 10, and they've got a very big body size, that 2000 might not be enough. So important to check the INR afterwards. And you might, in some patients, have to give just a little bit more PCC to get the number down. I would not use plasma by itself to try and reverse warfarin. We know from clinical studies that it takes much longer. And these patients, we just can't wait. All right. So just to clarify here, we're talking about the massively hemorrhaging patient who's like dying in front of you to flip it on its head. If you have a patient who has a mechanical heart valve and that's why they're taking warfarin and they have a bleed that's not life-threatening and you throw FFP and PCCs at them, uh, you could cause a lot more harm than than good. So I just want to make that clear for the audience. What we're talking about here is the massively hemorrhaging patient who's like dying in front of you and who's who's taking warfarin. And that's really interesting that you're giving both FFP and PCCs along with the, the vitamin K. But again, just to be clear that this is the really sick patient we're talking about. So that's how we would reverse the warfarin in a major trauma patient who's bleeding, who we're also activating the massive hemorrhage protocol on. What about the DOAX? We've talked about this extensively before in another episode in terms of uh, reversing DOAX. Um, But what about in this setting of the massively bleeding patient who requires a massive hemorrhage protocol? Uh, How would you suggest reversing DOAX in this situation? So I think this is actually pretty easy. So, you know, for dipagatran, we give idarucizumab, we give five grams, and then you're good for 24 hours. And that patient, once it's in them, they're now a regular patient. If they're on a 10A inhibitor like uh, Apixaban or Rivaroxaban, um, most physicians are recommending the use of PCCs, although the data to support that as an evidence-based statement isn't so hot. There is a specific antidote that in other countries people are using. It's called Adexanet Alpha, um, but it's not approved in Canada. It is very expensive. So even in other countries where it is available, not everybody's using it. It does need a continuous infusion, which is a difficult, uh, you know, if you're sending this patient through CT, IR up to the operating room. But of course, we don't have that here in Canada. So we use PCCs. And it looks like from observational studies, about 70% of patients will have good hemorrhage control with PCCs. And we use the same dose that we use for warfarin reversal, where you don't know the INR, we give 2,000. And if they're still bleeding at the one hour mark, we give another 2,000. Um, and then after that, we just switch to the regular FFP strategy at a two to one to one to one ratio. And honestly, there's no way you have the brain space to store all of these different dosages and drugs in your head. It's got to be posted on the wall in your trauma room or your emergency department um, so that at two o'clock in the morning, you don't have to retrieve this from some gray cell. You can just find it on the wall. Okay. So 
For most of the DOACs, it's PCCs, 2,000 international units, and repeat in an hour if the bleeding continues. And that's that's based on observational data. For dabigatran, which actually doesn't seem to be used much anymore, there's idarucizumab, which my understanding is that it makes the numbers look better, but it's never been shown to show any uh, patient-oriented outcome benefit. And it, it's very expensive as well. We've talked about it before on, on EM cases. From an evidence-based perspective, idarucizumab isn't, it might make us feel better to make the numbers look better, but in terms of patient outcomes, hasn't really been shown to be of much benefit. I have a genie cell number. That's the most important tool any trauma surgeon or a TTL or intensivist can ever possess. <laughs> <laughs> I get a text almost every day with the patients on this. This is how much they're bleeding. What is the dose? It, you could uh, put those put Jeannie's number in the show notes, Anton. Yeah, I mean, we're not that smart. We need Jeannie around. <laughs> okay. I mean, in all seriousness, good point. Get your hematologists involved early in these complex patients. And Dr. Callum, in terms of fibrinogen, let's say we're not in Europe and we're not giving fibrinogen early on and we're waiting for a fibrinogen level. What is the optimal blood product and threshold for replacement of fibrinogen? Yeah, so I think we have this huge blind spot for forgetting to measure the fibrinogen. I'm not really exactly sure why that is, but I somehow we have to all get the message out that if you have a major bleeding patient in front of you, you need to know what the fibrinogen is. It's the first clotting factor to drop off. And the threshold hasn't been well studied in a lot of detail. There actually are a few perioperative studies that randomize patients going for surgery, kids and adults to lower high fibrinogen thresholds. And they suggest that, you know, more aggressive might be better, but, you know, these aren't definitive studies. The guidelines um, recommend transfusing in a bleeding patient if the fibrinogen is below 1.5 to 2 grams per liter, and they give a range on that. And I have to tell you, if you're activating your massive hemorrhage protocol, we've got to get control of bleeding. Like that is along with surgical control of bleeding. Um, that's what's going to save the patient's life. So if you have crazy bleeding, um, I try and hit the top end of that range and I target to get a level above two. All right. We'll have all the cutoffs and dosing in the show notes, but I want to talk a little bit more about fibrinogen in terms of the obstetrical patient. So up to now, we've just been talking about the trauma patient, uh, but of course, Trauma patients aren't the only patients that might require a massive hemorrhage protocol. Obstetrical patients are a good example of patients who might require one as well. How is the obstetrical patient different to the trauma patient specifically when it comes to fibrinogen and giving fibrinogen and your threshold for giving fibrinogen? Uh, so I think there's two things that people need to just have straight in their head about obstetrical patients. And the first thing is we have really good observational data that pregnant women who have fibrinogens below two, when they're starting to bleed, they're much more likely to progress to a severe postpartum hemorrhage. And usually in the studies, that means they die, they need a hysterectomy, or they get four or more units of blood. So it's bad. So always try and hit two and above you know, throughout your resuscitation. Obviously, don't feel bad. Your first one might be zero. That's not your fault. Just get it to two. And the second is the uh, the majority of these massive ones, i.e. the ones you're going to be activating your massive hemorrhage protocol for, will have a very low fibrinogen level. So I don't wait for the results. As soon as they call a massive hemorrhage protocol activation on an obstetrical patient, our blood bank makes four grams of fibrinogen, and we get it into the patient. And after that, we check, is it over two? We don't ask any questions, just get the fibrinogen into the patient. Um, for those of you that are in a country where you use cryoprecipitate still, 
four grams of fibrinogen concentrates about the same as 10 units of cryoprecipitate. All right. So bottom line there is have a low threshold for giving fibrinogen or cryoprecipitate in the obstetrical patient who is bleeding to death. All right. Next up in our 70s is TXA. So considering that the fairly recent HALTIT trial showed no benefit and maybe some harm for TXA, but that's in GI bleed patients. But on the other hand, the CRASH-2 trial showed significant mortality benefit of TXA in trauma patients when given early. Uh, Dr. Petrosoniak, this is really a three-part question. First, who should get TXA when it comes to trauma? When should they get it? And thirdly, how much TXA should they get? I've heard some uh, varying opinions, one gram up front, two grams up front. So what do you think? Who, when, and how much TXA? If I think that the patient's bleeding and they have some physiologic derangement, and I just follow the CRASH-2 indications, which is systolic less than 90 or heart rate greater than 110, then I'm going to go ahead and give it. Certainly, the you know keeping the heuristic in mind that if you're giving blood, you should be giving TXA. If for whatever reason you haven't given the TXA yet and you decide, okay, uh, this patient I'm going to resuscitate with blood, then that should be an automatic default to do in that, at the bare minimum. But it, there's many patients that I'll give TXA to who ultimately do not get blood products and, because I just simply don't know yet what's going to happen with their clinical course. Uh, so that's sort of how I would approach that. I think that there are a subset of patients that will never get blood products, but I will give them TXA up front because I think that they're bleeding and they have some physiologic derangement. And then certainly all the patients that get blood and blood products get TXA as well. So that's how I approach who should get it. And you can see my bias that I I am sort of on the pro TXA side. Certainly there's some clinicians out there that might be less bullish on TXA. When should they uh, get it? I mean, I think under three hours is what seems to be the, the probably the best recommendation from the time of injury. And I think that's really important for, you know, folks that are listening that are at non-trauma centers. So if you're sending a patient to a trauma center, that might be one of the the few interventions that you can do instead of providing definitive hemorrhage control, you may be able to provide TXA to that patient prior to them arriving at a trauma center. And maybe by then it's over three hours. So uh, getting that in up front. And there's been some work actually led by Dr. Callum on the dosing of these and, and uh, how much do we actually complete the one plus one approach, which is one gram up front and then followed by an infusion, which is what CRASH-2 put forth. I think clearly from an operational level, that becomes challenging. So we've now shifted in our site uh, to giving two grams up front. It eliminates just so many headaches and tying up a line unnecessarily. We just give two grams up front and then we'll dose it according to um, subsequent you know, ongoing hemorrhage or if the ROTEM would advise that. Okay. So just to sum that up, the indication for giving TXA in the trauma patient is if you're giving blood, give TXA. The earlier, the better. Certainly within three hours is where the evidence is. And consider giving two grams up front instead of giving the one gram plus the one gram infusion, which uh, has logistical problems associated with it. Yeah. And I think you're missing patients if you're just giving it when you give blood. Um, Though Even if you think they're bleeding, I would go ahead and give it. You know, we tried to operationalize the one gram followed by a second gram, either by an infusion or a second bolus, which is what the military studies had used. 
And we were missing uh, 50% of the second dose. And we know that a substantial proportion of patients don't have good inhibition of their hyperfibrinolysis with a single gram. And so just to make things easy, we give two grams and then we move on to all the other things that we have to do for these patients. And I think making things uh, simpler for a trauma patient will, at the end of the day, help us get all the other things we need to do done for that patient. Let's move on now to one of the seven T's, which is testing. Dr. Callum, besides the usual CBC, INR, lactate, VBG, what are some of the key lab tests that we need to think about that are sometimes forgotten about? We actually uh, created a lab ordering system, you know, a massive hemorrhage protocol activation, and you just drop it and all the tests get ordered so that nobody has to remember them. So uh, at baseline, we always do your classic CBC, INR, PTT, and don't forget the fibrinogen. Light, so you get your calcium and your potassium, because of course, both of them can be whacked out just also from uh, the shock, but also the blood products, uh, some indices of the shock, like the pH and the lactate. And if you are ever so lucky at your site, you might have Rotem or TAG, but we've done surveys across the province and very few trauma uh, centers are routinely using this 24-7 for all of their patients. Um, we only do the PTT at baseline. It's really a screen. Okay, do, are they on dibigatran? Uh, do they have a congenital bleeding disorder? And if the first PTT looks good, you don't ever need to repeat that throughout the resuscitation. Um, it needs to be done as soon as possible. Uh, the INR predicts outcome for these patients. So it's really a great baseline of their prognosis. So don't miss that baseline INR. And you should be doing it at a minimum hourly or every four red cells, every six red cells throughout the resuscitation. And I think that those results have to come back to the clinical team. Um, so anything critical has got to come back and all the results of the hemoglobin, the platelet, the INR and the fibrinogen have to be called back even if they're normal. We operationalize that. We have a special red phone um, that is carried around with the patient so all the labs can reach the lead nurse on the team. It's important to call the normal results because you might get a hemoglobin of 150 and you're just about to order more red cells because the patient's hypotensive. Maybe they're not hypotensive from lack of blood. Maybe they're hypotensive because they have some other mechanism of their shock. Um, and so we call normal numbers because we're hoping it might actually stop some unnecessary transfusions. Great. So just in terms of nailing down how often you repeat which tests, you do not need to repeat the PTT, but you're doing essentially Q1H hemoglobin, Q1H INR, Q1H VBG, Q1H lactate. You got it. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Moving on with lab tests, we not only have to know what to order, but then and how often to order them, but what targets to hit. And that's next on our 7T list is the targets. So there's clinical resuscitation targets and there's lab resuscitation targets. Dr. Haas, what should the lab resuscitation targets be for the hemorrhaging patient? You know, there's base deficit, there's lactate, there's hemoglobin, there's fibrinogen, there's pH. Which ones are sort of the important ones and how do you kind of organize this in your head? I think that's a great question. In my mind, I think about three categories. So one is the time that I'm getting these numbers back. Two, I think about trajectory. What is the trajectory that these numbers are showing me? And then third is the actual absolute number. The values I'll be looking at are hemoglobin, platelets, INR, and everyone's favorite forgotten factor, fibrinogen. So 
the first thing is timing. Now, now, Dr. Callum did mention, you know, if your first hemoglobin is 150, you might be treating the wrong diagnosis. But it's also important to realize very early on, the patient's blood test may not reflect hemorrhage immediately. And if you're sure you're dealing with bleeding, i.e. your shoes are soaked with blood, your socks are soaked with blood, patient's bleeding, until you have hemorrhage control, it's really hard to use those numbers as targets because uh, they're not going to be accurate. So it's not unusual for me to be in the operating room looking at four liters of blood in the abdomen and to be told that the hemoglobin, maybe not 150, but it's certainly 100. And that's probably not accurate. So uh, as time progresses and the patient sort of evens out, that the absolute numbers are more important to me. When the patient's still clinically in front of me bleeding, they're somewhat less important. The second thing is trajectory especially during the sort of most intense part of the resuscitation, you want to see that you're just not falling behind. Uh, you think you're doing well, but your first INR is 1.5, the next one's 2, the next one's 3. It's telling you that things aren't going well, it, not just with your transfusion, but with your hemorrhage control. So I'm listening for the numbers to see, am I getting this under control or are we losing this battle? And then third are the absolute numbers. So overall, when all is done, I'm aiming for a hemoglobin of about 70. When all is done, I'm aiming for platelets of about 100 for polytraumas um, or patients with a head bleed. I'd like the INR to be as close to 1.5 as possible. And I do use for these very sick patients a fibrinogen of 2 as my target. But again, it takes a little bit of time to settle these patients out. And while they're clinically bleeding, it's hard to interpret these numbers. So, you know, I sometimes we overshoot. We try not to, but but sometimes we do. But I, I do think to Dr. Calm's point, if you haven't proven clinical bleeding and the first hemoglobin comes back at 150, you really have to think is an alternative diagnosis to this patient shock. So there's some judgment there. In terms of metabolic targets, you know, we'd like to see the a metabolic profile normalized. So the pH begin to approach normal. So 7.2, 7.25, 7.3, we'd like to see the base uh, deficit improving. We'd like to see the lactate below four. And of course, you want to maintain a normal calcium of over one during your resuscitation. And again, that's often forgotten. But especially for these very sick bleeding patients, and I find this is just anecdotal, so don't quote me on this, but for patients who bleed from blunt trauma, they do get an enormous vasoplegia after they get resuscitated, especially ones who have bad solid organ injuries like a bad liver. And so they might still be hemodynamically unstable and a bit acidotic even when they're done bleeding because from a metabolic point of view, they haven't caught up. And it's important to sort of differentiate that. And that's where your, your lab values start to really help, probably more so towards the end of your operation or the end of your embolization and once the patient's in the ICU. I think the, the targets are important. Uh, they're particularly important the later you are in your resuscitation. Early, if you're convinced there's bleeding, they might not be entirely helpful, but they do let you follow trends and let you see if you're falling horrifically behind. And if the clinical picture doesn't match your numbers at the beginning of the resuscitation, it's important to be open-minded and say, hey, maybe this patient's actually not bleeding at all. All right. Yeah, I really like that approach. Just the very basic thing I like to think about is to remember that there's both hematologic and metabolic targets, as, as you uh, outlined so again, the hematologic ones, hemoglobin, platelets, INR, and fibrinogen, and the metabolic ones, pH, base deficit, lactate, and the one that we always forget, calcium. 
we haven't talked yet about the sixth, I think, T it is, which is temperature. And so hypothermia is one of the common complications of an MHP for trauma patients. And it's something we need to try and minimize the chances of. We need to monitor for it. We really need to be on top of it. So Dr. Petrosoniak, in the emergency department and you know, until the patient actually leaves your department, how do we mitigate that risk of hypothermia? Yeah, I think um, this is uh, you know such an important vital sign that's often forgotten. It's kind of like the the fibrinogen of vital signs, I guess. You know, we forget about fibrinogen, as Dr. Callum was mentioning, and Dr. Haas, and and we also forget about temperature in many cases. So I think if we can figure out ways to at least measure it, never mind act on it, then we're we're at least moving in the right direction. Given that we do know that patients who are hypothermic uh, do worse than those who are high, you know, in normal thermic. As far as I'm aware, there's no randomized trials looking at this in trauma patients, but it does seem in observational data that uh, folks that get hypothermic do worse. And that's sort of been well described as part of the coagulopathy of trauma as well. A way to integrate this, at least as a default, to ensure that you don't leave your trauma bay or leave your resuscitation room with a hypothermic patient is to include in your trauma checklist, which we use um, upon departure to include, you know, was the temperature checked? And if it's less than 35, have we acted on it? We expose all of our patients in the initial primary survey, clothes come off, and that's a really helpful tool to even just get um, off wet or cold clothes, particularly in the winter months. And then putting warm blankets, uh, plus or minus a bear hugger on them, though that certainly makes it more challenging to do interventions over the thorax. But those tools aren't as useful as if simply, you know, making sure that warm fluids, warm blood products are are going in. And that's been shown to be more effective than something like turning up the heat in your resuscitation room. That's just going to make your your team more angry and, and hot and, and, and uh, it's just unpleasant. So, you know, that's probably not where I would focus my efforts. I'd make sure that the, that the fluids going in are warm. But just regularly checking this uh, Q1 hour, uh, and I would you know make that even more frequent if you find that the patient is hypothermic. All right. So that's a bit about temperature. I want to talk a little bit about blood wastage. So Dr. Callum, one of the reasons we're sometimes short of needed blood products is because they're used indiscriminately. You know, they're not used according to the indications. Another reason is that we don't use the leftover blood product. We toss it in the garbage instead. So just from more of an admin point of view um, and a systems point of view, what can hospitals do to mitigate blood wastage? You know, this is really important. You know, the blood donor makes their gift and we're kind of the custodian of it. So we should be doing everything we can to prevent that wastage. I guess the things that I would say that I see that, you know, might help is first, don't activate your massive hemorrhage protocol just because you need uncross matched red cells, because that means they start thawing plasma that you're never going to use. So just call the blood bank and ask for four units of unmatched in a cooler. You're just going to get absolutely the fastest red cells that blood text could ever possibly get you. Keep the product stored in the container the way they come with the lid closed. Don't change the packing configuration inside. If your, say, your red cells come between two gel packs, if you put the red cells on top of those two gel packs and they come back, they're going to be too hot. They're all going to go in the garbage. Return them as soon as you realize you don't need them. A lot of hospitals have a one-hour death time, so if you don't get them back within 60 minutes, they all go in the garbage. Don't write on the blood... Uh, unit labels. That's defacing the labels. And by standards, we have to throw them out. 
And don't put the empties that have open ports back in with the clean ones because they tend to splatter blood all over them and then we can't use them. So it's not beer. Don't put your empties in with your full ones. Just put them somewhere else in the operating room. Yeah, such important details so that we can ensure that we do have blood products for the people who need them. Related to that is the decision of who gets O-negative blood, who gets O-positive blood, because there's not an abundance of O-negative blood available. Uh, it's not an endless supply. So Dr. Petrosonia, could you just go over for us who gets O-neg, who gets O-pause, who gets cross-matched? How do we decide on that one? Yeah, so if you if you don't know anything about the patient, then the default is, is O-negative. But as soon as you can establish that it's a male patient, uh, then you can immediately go to O-positive. And a woman that's um, postmenopausal, I think, you know, arbitrarily in, in the, the literature and guidelines that's often, you know, 45 years or older, but whatever you might, you know, I would set my own standard in my mind over 50, over 45, something like that. And then I automatically just call for O positive. And then for uh, women that are of childbearing age, uh, then really that's where the, the utility of O negative is. So but most people are getting O positive. All right. That's uh, pretty straightforward. Before we get to the last T of uh, that's termination, there's one more question we haven't mentioned yet about recombinant factor 7A, which I personally haven't given in the ED for many, many years. Uh, I haven't even seen, and it's it's because I really haven't seen any decent data showing any benefit. Dr. Haas, is there ever a time that we should consider giving recombinant factor 7A in the ED? I think if the patient uh, has hemophilia, <laughs> um, we were chatting about this with Dr. Callum. There's really no data to support the use of factor 7A in trauma. In fact, there's a uh, signal towards harm. Um, I've never given it since I became faculty. It was quite popular 10, 15 years ago, but since then the data has evolved and certainly no evidence of benefit and, and it probably hurts patients. All right. So factor 7A is dead, except for maybe in the known hemophilia patient. The last T of the 70s of MHP is termination. So Dr. Haas, how do you know when it's safe to stop MHPs? I mean, this is important because we don't want to waste blood products. If you overtransfuse patients, they can get into other problems. When do you know when to stop? That is the number one most difficult question in resuscitation, in my opinion. I think it's a decision that should be made by the whole treating team. So often we'll stop it in the operating room after discussion between anesthesia and surgery or in the ICU with a discussion between ICU and surgery. It's all about the trends. Uh, you want to see the numbers normalizing. You want to see the hemodynamics improving. And you want to have hit your resuscitation targets in a meaningful way. I find that sometimes the patient becomes hemodynamically more normal and everyone sort of breathes a sigh of relief and uh, transfusions stop, but we lose sight of the fact that the clotting is not yet normal. And then there becomes sort of a second wave of bleeding where things get away from us. So I think it's really important to focus on those targets that we talked about and not just be reassured because the hemodynamics normalize. Certainly, if you have normal hemodynamics and you've hit your targets, then it's safe to stop. If you've hit your targets and your hemodynamics are normalizing uh, and you're taking account sort of the non-bleeding causes of hypotension like the peri-injury vasoplegia, you can probably slow down or stop. 
but you have to be thoughtful about it. And certainly don't stop just because the blood pressure is good if you're not happy with your with your INR and your fibrinogen. All right. And Dr. Callum, your take on when to stop the MHP? So I'm going to pick up on uh, Dr. Haas's uh, trajectory. As long as everything's going in the right direction, the, you know, the patient's vitals are better. The surgeons are clearly happy that bleeding control has been achieved. And, you know, the pH is coming up, the lactate's going down, and all of the coags are now starting to normalize. And that's when you kind of have a group decision. Are we there? Yeah, we're here. Let's stop. Um, I think you need to realize that premature termination is a big problem. Everybody goes away. People stop watching that patient for rehemorrhage. And, you know, the blood bank technologists probably haven't had a break for six hours. So they've all, you know, they've dropped to one technologist in the blood bank. The other ones have gone to grab some dinner. Um, So I think it's really important that we don't terminate early. All righty. So that's uh, the complicated uh, decision of when to stop the MHP. One thing we haven't talked about before we finish up is the complications of transfusions and what our responsibility is to tell the patient or, or their family. So Dr. Haas, let's say you've done your laparotomy, the dust is settled and you're speaking to the family. What do you counsel them or tell them when it comes to the complications of uh, lots of transfusion? I think the most important thing is to tell women of childbearing age who want more children that they should get a group and screen from their primary care provider or from us if they don't have one about three to six months after surgery. And I think it's important to be available and to provide reassurance. We know families, just as much as patients are at risk for PTSD from the experiences they have of seeing their loved ones in the intensive care unit and being a reassuring presence and answering questions, I believe can really mitigate that risk. Absolutely. The really big one that we've talked about before with Dr. Callum is the alloimmunization risk and that I think not all eMERGE docs counsel their patients on when giving transfusions in the emergency department. So I I think that's a really important piece of it. So we've covered the 70s of massive hemorrhage protocols. Now, it's easy to talk about, but it's a lot harder to actually implement in your hospital. So Dr. Callum, from a logistics perspective, if folks out there want to get a committee together to come up with an MHP for their hospital, how should they go about doing it? Do you have any tips in terms of what your experience was getting the panel together and making it work? Yes. So uh, we have a co-transfusion committee at the hospital. Uh, compared to maybe other committees of the hospital, we always have amazing turnout. You know, the clinicians want a, a high-functioning massive hemorrhage protocol. You know, our committee is really uh, multidisciplinary. We have nurses, intensivists, obstetrician, eMERGE docs, transfusion docs. We have somebody from the communications. We have porters. We have the technologists, both from the blood bank and the coag lab. Get everybody to the table. And we do uh, collect debriefs, and we you know, go through the ones that happened in the last six to 12 months looking for common failure points. And then we either try to change the protocol to make it better, or we change our educational uh, approach to make, allow people to get better adherence. 
And some really great ideas have come out of this committee. You know, we recently added this code transfusion red phone um, so that, you know, it travels with the patient so everybody can reach them. We attach to every cooler with four red cells, the blood tubes and the requisitions. So nobody has to remember to do the blood work hourly. It just comes with each case. So trying to just make things so that the cognitive burden of running these things is lower, just little nudges to get people to do the right thing. What a beautiful example of uh, collaboration between specialties, you know? I think it goes without saying that sometimes uh, the different specialties in the hospital don't get along like we dream that they should. And good on you to be able to make it work at your hospital. Before we go, let me ask you this. One last question is, if there was one thing that you could tell emergency physicians around the world who are listening to this podcast about massive hemorrhage protocols, uh, not to forget, what would it be? Let's start with Dr. Callum. You know what I'm going to say is check the fibrinogen, and if it's low, get it up. All right. And Dr. Haas? I think we've spent a lot of time here, you know, assuming we're at a trauma center, assuming we have a team, but many, many trauma providers, uh, particularly in Canada, are not at a trauma center. In our province, two-thirds of severely injured patients are initially seen by an eMERGE doc outside a trauma center. So with the idea that the massive hemorrhage protocol is to get the patient to hemorrhage control, call early, initiate the transfer early. Don't be worried about having to sell the patient or about asking questions from your colleagues at the local trauma center. And Develop a relationship with your local trauma center so that you know what the transfer guidelines are. So you're not by yourself in managing these patients. And as much as the ratios are important and the fibrinogen is important, getting the patient to where they need to go is the single most important thing. And if you're outside a trauma center, you play a critical role in that. So let us help and support you in any way we can. Well said. And uh, Dr. Petrosoniak, any uh, one thing you'd like to leave the listeners with? One thing we didn't touch on was once you give, I arbitrarily pick three units of blood products, uh, then give calcium. And I think that these patients get quite hypocalcemic. I would add one more thing is that I think it's really important. Uh, I mean, I love what Jeannie just talked about, about bringing the whole team together and, and having a, you know, there really is a team effort and a team sport here. And if you can evaluate your program, look at, you know, outcomes get everybody on board so that they have a shared mental model for what the the goal is. I think that's really critical. We, we use a lot of simulation at our place to try and help instill that, but it's such a critical thing for everybody from a porter to clericals to, you know, surgeons to nurses to understand, you know, what the common goal is. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Haas, Dr. Callum, Dr. Petrosoniak. Your insights are invaluable. And I'm quite sure that anyone who deals with trauma patients who's listening to this will take away some important pearls that they can use the next time they see a trauma patient. Thank you for having us. Thanks for the great conversation. That was super fun. Thanks, Anton. Thanks, Anton.